This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, Steve Crossman here. I'm just dropping in quickly with a completely not made up fact. Did you know it is not actually possible to have too much football in your life? It's true. And we've got you covered on the Football Daily. The biggest names covering the biggest games with the biggest debates, all hitting your podcast feed seven days a week. Get involved and subscribe to the Football Daily on BBC Sounds. Now, back to your podcast. You're listening to the TMS Podcast from BBC Radio 5 Live. Hello, I'm Eleanor Aldroyd and welcome to this bonus TMS Podcast, the latest in our series of Ashes Tour Tales. We've moved on to Adelaide for the second test with commentary from 3.25 on Thursday morning. And we're going to be sharing memories of visits to the iconic Adelaide Oval, where Bodyline erupted in the 1930s and more recently the scene of a Phil de Freitas-inspired victory in 1994-95 and an incredible opening to the 2010 test. Well, it's so wonderful to be in Adelaide, one of the most beautiful cities in Australia, one of my favourite cities in the world, probably, and almost certainly my favourite cricket ground uh, outside the UK. Uh, Adelaide Oval is just set in beautiful parkland. You walk to it along and across the Torrens River, and it just unfolds in the most scenic setting that you can possibly have. And I love coming here. It just seems to kind of fill you with that sense of history. Um, and Jonathan Agnew, who is on his ninth Ashes tour, Stephen Finn, three times Ashes winner, at three times Ashes tourist, who was part of the team that won here 11 years ago. TMS commentator Simon Mann on his fifth tour here. And to add statistical and historic context, Andy Saltzman, I'm sure, also delighted to be here in Adelaide. And Agas, first of all, what is it? What's so special about Adelaide Oval? What makes it such a well, great it's a place cricket to ground. <laughs> it's yeah. a proper cricket ground, as simple as that. I mean, so many of these grounds here in Australia—they're very impressive. They they hold tens of thousands of people, but only this one and and, and the Wacker, which sadly is no more, uh, at least for men's cricket. Um, they're actually proper cricket grounds, and so this place—I first played here in 1978, when most of it was grass, and you could actually walk around the ground, and you, had, you, know, you could see the cathedral and so on. And so it's interesting coming back every you know, so often since then and see how it's changed. And what's wonderful about about that particular ground is that it's, it's really strictly controlled by the, the planners here in Adelaide. I mean, this whole city is very historic and very traditional, very wide streets and so on. But they've been really meticulous about maintaining that proper feel about the Adelaide Oval, even though now it's a very modern stadium and obviously hosts Aussie rules as well. They've done it so well. I mean, it, they just have. And you can see straight down the park from, from our end. They've maintained the old scoreboard there. There's an electric one beside it. There's still plenty of grass. There's still a hill, uh, which, of course, used to be Sydney's great domain, but that went, that went years ago. But above all, it just feels like it's a very traditional, yet modern modern cricket ground and that's 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 what I love about it what was your first visit here like Simon first visit here actually was for a game bizarrely between Australia and Australia A in the tri-series actually I say tri-series actually four teams involved they, they didn't think England and Zimbabwe were strong enough in 94-5 so they put in Australia A as well so Australia A against Australia the day Australia played with itself uh, it was a, a strange occasion Australia A nearly beat Australia and I was looking actually at the Australia A team that day Lehman Hayden Martin Langer Ponting <laughs> 
Tom Moody, Rifle, Murph Hughes. Of course, a lot of rancour, didn't it? I remember the game well, too. Both teams hated playing it because the main team didn't want to be beaten by Australia A. The Australia A team thought they should have been playing in the main team. It was a a very strange setup. But look how strong that Australia A team was. It was absolutely incredible. Basically, the Australian team was the the test team. I had a look at that. And and in the end, they ended up playing in the final. But I remember playing the game being played here. It was a great game, actually, because Australia just beat Australia A but all the Australian supporters who were in were supporting Australia A it was a really it was a really weird (laughs) occasion it was a very whole thing the whole series was really weird I remember actually England beating Australia A in Melbourne and it seemed like a massive victory because it was such a they had real slim pickings on that tour Uh, bizarre I don't think it happened these days I think talking about the way it looks as well and it's when I was growing up wanting to come to Australia fascinated by cricket it was the place I wanted to to come to I think because of the the cathedral in the background you know the hill just that traditional element to it but I kept, when I did first come here four years ago um, Graham Swan your old teammate Finney was working with us and, and, and he we walked across and he said they've ruined it they've ruined it because of the big stands that have built up blocking the view of the cathedral and it has changed an awful lot hasn't it since, since you played here in 2010 yeah it has it was a bit more quaint I suppose in in 2010 on the far side of the ground I think the only stand that was developed was the one that we changed in um, and the rest of it was still as it was before then Um, but it was a magical sort of ground everything about it the shape of the oval uh, it is literally an oval shape it's really long and thin which is quite strange for a cricket ground Um, so you have to alter the way that you play here Um, the the wickets tend to be really flat Um, it's a means that the test matches always last five days it's like a social occasion as well I've got some friends from Adelaide and it's like going to the races or a day at the Lord's Cricket you, you go there too or well, Wimbledon too actually you've got a touch of Wimbledon about yeah, it isn't it yeah, yeah very much so in the back out out the back and vast areas where people just go and, and socialise and, and stuff so yeah everything about it is quite a magical place and obviously fantastic memories from that 2010 tour being the first um, game that we won in that series. It's interesting the comparison to Wimbledon, isn't it? Because you've got I don't know whether it's Boston Ivy or Virginia Creeper or whatever it is, but it's some kind of creeper mm. that's on the on the back of the stand where we were down next to the nets uh, yesterday, Agas, and, and the you know the score box as well, just to be able to go into there. But but you go into the old pavilion as well, and there is a fantastic display about body line. Um, and, and I remember doing that four years ago. We walked around that and looked at the history of it. And, and, and Andy Zaltzman, I kind of think it, it's something that we should probably just set the context of what happened in, in that Bodyline series because it's one of the most notorious stories in cricket. Uh, yes, it was the third test of the series and the series stood at one all um, going into it. England started disastrously badly. They were 30 for four on the first morning, recovered to 3.41. When Australia batted there, captain Bill Woodfull was hit on the heart by a, a short ball from Larwood. And then later in the innings, Bert Oldfield, their wicketkeeper, was hit on the head uh, after top-edging an attempted pull shot. Uh, and it did sort of spark the diplomatic side of, of, of body line. Reading the uh, Wisden report from, from that match, it led to the dispatch of a cablegram protesting against uh, body line bowling um, so it became a sort of you know, proper diplomatic incident uh, you know cablegrams in the 1930s that's pretty much as serious as it got really um, so uh, uh, so England ended up winning winning the game quite comfortably uh, in the end and um, they went on to win the the, the, the series 4-1 so but it was Adelaide where 
the sort of crowd erupted in in protest and um, things happened off the field. And there was that incident where uh, Woodfull in the um, Australian dressing room, I think um, England's sort of tour manager Helen Warner went in and uh, and Woodfull said there are two teams out there and only one of them is playing cricket or words words to that effect. And um, yes, again by today's standards, it probably <laughs> was strong words. Yes. Oh, it's worth making the point, actually, why it was so controversial. I mean, these days, you wouldn't bat an eyelid, short ball to any batter, really. But in those days, well, it was more, it was so directed. And because you could have more than two fielders behind square on the leg side. Yeah, so, uh, so I, I, I think that, you know, some of the, the concern about it was it was not considered a fair tactic, bringing the batsman's body into play in order that it led to cricket that wasn't great to watch because, it, you know, you, the range of shots batsmen could play against that type of bowling was was limited. So I think there was partly an aesthetic complaint about it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, old, old, the, I think if I'm right, you might be able to back me up on this. I mean, when Oldfield was hit, I don't think the body line field was in place. I think he was playing a pull shot, but you know, when they had an offside field, but it you know was a, a spark, um, and he top edged it into his own head and had to be taken to hospital. Of course, there are those who think. Douglas Jardine is England's greatest ever Ashes hero. He, he came up with a plan to stymie Don Bradman, who still you averaged 56 you you in the you series. You won't find many people in, in Adelaide thinking that. Actually, the one thing, I, before we move on from that, I, I would say that the other nice thing about, well, one of the other nice things about Adelaide Oval is that the statue of Don Bradman at the front does actually look like Don Bradman. It's on the walk from the cathedral to the ground. You don't often find a statue that looks like the subject that it's based on but look, look let's yeah, the one in Sydney there's a, a a plaque in Sydney with a sort of 3D relief of Bradman that looks absolutely nothing like him <laughs> so obviously they prefer him here in Adelaide anyway let's bring it kind of slightly more up to date actually maybe we'll we'll jump forward let's jump forward to some good news and, and that 2010 victory here Finney which you played in what was what was it like to play in that game? What were you? What are your memories? First of all, of the first, the very first over of the day. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the wildest starts to a Test match that I've ever played in. I think, and the run out, Jonathan Trot aiming at one stump, and I was at fine leg, and I just remember coming round, and I was almost behind him because I was going to cut off when you back up, you sort of dovetail so that you run behind the other fielder, and he was at square leg. And, and he came round and I was perfectly behind and I just saw it and as soon as it came out of his hand I was like that's hit the stumps this is phenomenal hits the stumps and he goes off doing his crazy celebration everyone hugs him and then in the same over Graham Swan took a fantastic catch off, um, off Ricky Ponting I think it was um, like a low down to his right and it was sort of that moment where you thought this, this could actually be something quite special you obviously try not to get carried away but in that moment and then to have them three down very soon after it was just yeah the most incredible start to a test match and I mean like England in the previous test match that we saw here had the worst possible start on the flip side um, that for us just gave us so much momentum and from there it was just like it wasn't plain sailing but you just felt like you're in the ascendancy from from that beginning that first over of the game. What do you remember of that Jonathan? I remember Michael Clark running out of the nets because uh, they were well, not for two almost, weren't they? And, and, and Clark was actually practicing in the nets um, beyond the pavilion. And so he literally ran from the nets out into the middle, didn't he? I mean, that was, yeah, it was an extraordinary start. It was one of those games where, where things just went right. You know, KP comes on to bowl at the end and, 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 gets, and gets Michael Clark in the second innings. And it, 
absolutely hammered down with rain almost well pretty quickly after England had won the match as well and there was sort of rain that would have meant no play oh, it was it was it was brilliant because they come from from Brisbane buoyed by that draw um, morale was very high um, and and it, you know, it's one of those times when a, when a draw is as good as a win and Australia a bit deflated from what happened to Brisbane so England just cashed in but it was it was a, it was a great win I'm over, I've only seen England win here uh, once before that so it is, it is, it is very rare. I mean, Australia have a great record here. So it's quite interesting that you talk about teams being settled. Like we just knew after the first test that the team was going to be the same for the second test. Whereas there were so many question marks over Australia's bowling attack. Mitchell Johnson played the first one, didn't play the second one. Doug Bollinger got called in from um, state oh, yeah. cricket to Peterson come and play. Yeah, Peterson was just <laughs> savage in that game. It was, it was, it was phenomenal batting. Um, and and you just felt as though you were in the ascendancy. Um, it was a fantastic match to play in, and yeah, so many different little quirks about that game were such fantastic memories. The the Clark dismissal, where it was almost disbelief that yeah. he just managed to edge such an innocuous short ball from Peterson onto his thigh pad, and it ballooned to short leg, and you're just like what on earth is happening here like, I bowled a half tracker to Mike Hussey and he just spooned it straight in the air to mid on went for the entire previous test match and the rest of the Adelaide test match he'd murdered it through mid wicket it just felt as though everything went right and I think something people forget about that game Stuart Broad got injured as well um, and tore his side really badly and couldn't bowl so it was me Jimmy Anderson and Graham Swan pretty much just doing all of the bowling I think that's why Peterson was bowling on that fourth evening to give the rest of us a bit of a break um, yeah and then afterwards when the rain came remember Paul Collingwood sort of we were all sat in the dressing room having a beer because we had a gap between the second and third tests where we went off to Melbourne I think to play a, a warm-up game so so we were allowed to indulge ourselves slightly that night without fear of consequences in further test matches and just sat there having a beer and all of a sudden Paul Collingwood runs through in his pants <laughs> literally his little wife runs sprints through the dressing room and everyone's like what, he, what is he up to and he's making all this noise in his Geordie accent sprints up the concourse out onto the pitch and does a Klinsman dive across the covers in the pouring rain and came back completely soaked and you know, it, it, one of my most vivid memories of that is just seeing Paul Collingwood like little ginger fella running, running back from the um, from the oval completely soaked through it was just that, that camaraderie that we had on that tour was different to I think any other tour that I went on as an England player um, it, it was such a warped experience and a complete contrast to what I experienced in, in latter years well, we should maybe move on to the latter years stuff, shouldn't we? And, and memories, memories of Mitchell Johnson. Tell us about him, watching him bowl. Well, Adelaide Oval is one of the few grounds in the world where you watch from side on. So if you're a batter, you're sat up in the viewing gallery and, you, and you're looking from side on. And, and Aggers will attest to this. I think Old Trafford, the quickest wicket when you played yeah. in the country before it got turned, you watch from side on. So you sort of sat there and... You're watching from side on, you're like, I mean, someone bowling 63 miles an hour looks quick from side on, so let alone 93 miles an hour. And you see Johnson whistling in, and you don't see the ball come out of his hand. And the only thing you see is Brad Haddon just catching it above his head. And you think, oh, <laughs> that's pretty fast. <laughs> and, and it's like, like you're a gladiator just waiting to go out there and face your death sentence because it's terrifying watching from side on and it's one of the few grounds that, that you do that and that series in 13-14 Johnson bowled magnificently it was some of the best sustained fast bowling over the course of a series that I've witnessed live 
um, for pace, accuracy, skill. Um, and Adelaide Oval was the worst place to watch him because he was side on. He took seven for 40 in that test match. The, the other amazing thing about that game is just look at the scores on first innings. Australia made 570, England 172. Australia did not enforce the follow on. <laughs> I mean, they had a leader about 400 on first innings. I'm not quite sure why. I mean, you want to give your bowlers a bit of a rest, don't you? But I mean, it was just, it was just like a slow torture bring that whole match and Hadding got I remember Hadding getting 100 in the first innings and England was sort of in the game a bit and I think he was dropped really badly dropped somewhere like backward point might even have been off you Finney I don't know you, you were a very unlucky bowler at times but always always yeah. unlucky yeah but I mean he was just phenomenal wasn't he in that series Mitchell Johnson uh, the um that was Ben Stokes's test debut the Adelaide test match I remember I think he got Brad Hadding out off a no ball in that match before he'd got 100 and it's the first time like I, I'd heard of Stokesy I'd been in an England ODI squad with him in 2011 when he first got called up to the team but it was the first time that I'd witnessed live like his charisma and his character for someone making his test debut uh, there'd be great photos of him he got in a confrontation with Haddon on test debut as a 21 year old or a 22 year old or whatever he was and stood up to him who was one of Australia's main players it's when you sort of like okay, this guy's got something special about him and the character that you want from an all-rounder. Then he goes and scores that magnificent 100 in Perth, the test match after. As far as your memories of that, that kind of series, Aggers, and, and watching Mitchell Johnson... Yeah, well, being then. a fast bowler, I, mean, I love watching fast bowlers bowl, <laughs> especially when you're 100 yards away in a commentary box. Um, I remember Stuart Broad in that match, walking out to bat, and he I did unwisely had a bit of a go at Mitchell Johnson. As, I think he and Jimmy, I don't seem to remember them walking off I think when Johnson was batting at the end of play and they both got involved in giving him a real earful I remember saying at the time I'm not sure it's very wise <laughs> but then Stuart Brawl came out to bat he's not happy against fast bowling as we know and he picked out some spot before he faced the ball some spot on the sight screen and it took forever for the ground staff to sort it out and a bloke came with a ladder and put it up on the side of the screen and did something it took forever and we all knew what was going to happen sure enough you know, the bloke came down his ladder, put it away. Broad finally takes guard, gets over his bat, and Johnson came to the far end and just blew his stumps out of the ground first ball. <laughs> and it was that kind of summed it up. But I, I, I loved watching Mitchell Johnson, not least because of the great story. It was a great sporting story. The way he turned his career around, albeit quite briefly, mm. but you know, to come back as he did was absolutely amazing. And to watch him you know, in that game was, was, was clearly very special. When we were talking about doing this podcast, Andy Zaltzman, you, you said, as long as I don't have to relive 2006, 2007. Yeah. Um, just rem- you're going to have to relive it now, I'm afraid. So what? just remind us of the extraordinary sort of sequence that, of events. Um, well, England had lost the first test. It was the series after their wonderful win in 2005, so defending the Ashes and you know, had a period of, of great success as a team. And in the second test, just having lost that first test, scored 551 for six declared Collingwood made a double century Peterson 158 England were in total control of the game uh, took some early wickets they had Australia 65 for three when Damien Martin was out Ricky Ponting was dropped by Ashley Giles I think it was deep square leg wasn't it from a, from a pull shot and he went on to make up 142 Australia recovered to 513 so England still had a lead um, and you thought the game was heading towards heading towards a draw uh, the end of um, end of day four, England were 59 for one from 19 overs, and so 100 odd ahead, 
And, and day five was a slow motion catastrophe for England. Shane Warne, four for 49 from 32 overs. England only went at 1.7 and over. And bear in mind, they scored at three and over for the first part of that inning. So on day five, they just got constricted and tensed, tensed up. I remember watching it through the night alone at home as this just gradually unfolded. And sort of, it, sort of, it wasn't a sort of one of those spectacular collapses. It was wickets sort of gradually through the day and almost no runs whatsoever all out 129 from uh, from 73 a couple of wickets for Lee McGrath 2 for 15 from 10 and then uh, Australia knocked off 168 and 33 overs to win by six wickets but it was that I mean that you know that tour ended in a 5-0 defeat but at 1-0 down and having beaten Australia before and started that game so well it felt like England had a chance of getting back into it but that last day as an England fan was about as harrowing as it gets I did an event with Mike Hussey the other day and he, he was in that Australia side and he was saying that when they turned up on the fifth morning of the game they were in the dressing room Shane Warne and Ricky Ponting and John Buchanan Australia's coach at the time said we can win this game and Mike Hussey said he was at the back of the dressing room going you what, mate? You must be absolutely mad. He was thinking, he didn't say it out loud. And they said, right, what are we going to do? Are we going to attack or are we going to defend? So are we just going to squeeze them? And in the end, that's what they did, didn't they? They squeezed them. They set quite defensive fields. England couldn't find a run. And they produced, I mean, a miracle victory. I mean, but there was were... trouble because Matthew, I mean, Matthew Hoggard got seven for in the first innings, but bowling cutters. So it was, it was one of those pitches where the ball was gripping. It wasn't easy to, to score at a, at a rate. And so you knew, actually, that Warren could be a threat. Um, so... I guess that's what they, yeah. they, they they took into that conversation. The, the other thing about that game as well is that I remember I remember actually being at home for this game. I was coming out later and screaming at my television, <laughs> "Don't declare! Don't <laughs> declare!" When England declared on the second day, I mean they they just taken fifty runs off about five overs. Just get masses. Just get absolutely masses. I know they wanted to bowl at them before the close, and they did get Langer out. But I remember that was my instinctive reaction as they walked off at five fifty. Okay, it's a good score, but don't declare. Just keep on going. Finney, do you, do you remember watching that at home? You were... Yeah, that was one of the first test matches that I ever really stayed up through the night to watch. I remember Collingwood scoring his double hundred. Um, it was, yeah, and it was one of the first times that I saw England in the ascendancy in Australia, um, and especially after what happened in the first test, you felt enthused by the way they started the game. But yeah, like sort of says the slow motion car crash on day five sort of had you looking through your fingers through the night but yeah it's the first time that I properly stayed up through the night to watch England play on an overseas tour that that final day England 70 for nine from 54 <coughs> overs and the first innings Warren and McGrath between them won for about 270 and then uh, destroyed yeah. England on that final day we should talk about Phil De Freitas, Agus, shouldn't we, as well because because that was he, he won man of the match for his batting in 94-95 that was 94-95, uh, which was a really good game of cricket. That was the, other, the only other victory I've seen England uh, pull off here. Yes, he got, he, he got his man of the match for his, for his batting, and Devon Malcolm uh, and Chris Lewis actually bowled Australia out at the end. I think my, one of my clearest memories, though, is of the tour before that, when David Gower and, and Graham Gooch had spectacularly fallen out. Gower had flown his biplane up in Carrara. He got, they actually waited till they got here to fine him for that. So you know, the, the, the morale was absolutely rock bottom. And I'd had a running bet with Martin Johnson, uh, who was writing those days, I think, for the Telegraph. Um, I, I was trying to say, look, Martin, you don't deliberately bowl at a, someone like David Gower's legs. You don't do it. And Martin gets but he keeps getting out, caught down the legs. I said, I'm telling you, as a former international bowler, mate, you don't do that. I'm having a $10 bet with you 
that you just don't do it, you know. And so the last over before lunch, sure enough, it was uh, McDermott who bowled one down down that leg stump line. Gower went swish and was caught by Murph Hughes about ten yards in, deliberately placed. And at the press box in those days was right beside the dressing room, so outside, and and the walkway was literally right beside the press box. And I remember as as well, as Gower walked off, you know, he's done a bit airily. Gooch went behind him with a face like absolute <laughs> thunder because they weren't talking anyway. And I just reached over and gave Martin the ten dollars. Uh, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, mate. I think you probably know more about bowling than I do. But it, that was that was the real beginning of the end for Gower, and certainly. It, it was the end of, of any sort of relationship that he had with Graham Gooch. It sadly sort of rather, rather dribbles on to this day. The remarkable thing about that series, though, Ag, as we had a look at it, is that Gower, before that innings, he got 100 in each of the two previous test matches and 61 in the Brisbane test match as well. So, yeah. he, in a way, he was sort of entitled it to... It was a shambolic tour. Yeah. I mean, there, were, there were some people who, to say they, they were, they were sort of the, the antithesis of Graham Gooch as far as training and work hard, Wayne Larkins and Gowron. I mean, it was, you know... It was a hard work tour for Graham, and I just think he just got so frustrated by that biplane incident. There you go. Well, look, we're hoping to create lots more exciting tales uh, at Adelaide Oval starting on Thursday. Thanks to Agas, Steve Finn, Simon Mann and Andy Zaltzman. They will all be back on TMS from 3.25 on Thursday morning, and I'll have updates on Five Live throughout, including extensive coverage on Five Live Breakfast. There will also be video clips available on the BBC Sport website and app and a full highlights show available on the BBC iPlayer from 6pm. And look out on this stream for plenty more podcasts, including No Balls with Alex Hartley and Kate Cross, plus our daily TMS at the Ashes Test Review. BBC Sounds. June 2008. Across the London skyline, a helicopter emerges. It lands at Lord's Cricket Ground. Emerging from the helicopter is a tall, brash Texan called Alan Stanford, and he's come with a load of money and a revolutionary idea to change cricket. One night, one game, winner take all, 20 US million dollars. What was to follow was one of the most extraordinary stories to ever hit sport. This guy smells to high heaven. He fooled important people. I'm Greg James, and you can hear Alan Stanford, the man who bought cricket, by searching for sports' strangest crimes on BBC Sounds.